morning. What a joy to see so many new members. You continue to build your church. You said you would build it, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we watch you do that, and we give you praise for that, Lord. We can't build the church. It's not ours. You purchase it with your son's blood. And so we know that you are doing this great work. Thank you for worship this morning. Beautiful choir songs, corporate singing together, lifting our voices in praise to our great God. Thank you for letting us give to you, Lord. What a blessing to give to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You let us be involved with this. And so we ask that you would take those gifts and use them greatly for your glory and for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, give us strength, give us understanding, and help us to be more knowledgeable about you, but also greater worshipers, and those who follow you, follow you even in difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a full morning, and so I think this is going to be an introduction to my introduction. Uh, so I doubt I'm going to get through this this morning just for the sake of time. But there's reason why I want to, as we start the, the study on 1 Corinthians, I want to just lay out a few things for you. One, 1 Corinthians is probably a book that's been more misused than any book in the Bible. And a lot of it is because there's not an understanding of the context. They don't understand what this church was like, where it was planted, what the difficulties were in, and how Paul patiently, patiently worked with a very stubborn and very disobedient church. And yet today, 1 Corinthians is the book of theology for many charismatic churches. And it's misused in so many ways. And so it's important that over these next couple of weeks, we lay a really good foundation to understand what was happening with this church. Who was there? How did it get started? Uh, why was it planted there? And we want to look at that so we'll rightly handle the Word of God. I want to start in 2 Timothy chapter 2 of all places. I want to start there because, uh, as we know, this is the work of Apostle Paul. He has been sent to plant this church, but I want you to see his mentality. As you turn there, let me challenge you just with a thought. What if I stood in this pulpit this morning and said, I need a group of people to go to a city that is known as the most wicked, immoral, irreligious place on the planet, and who will raise their hand and take their young family with me to go help plant that church? How many would jump out of your seat to go do something like that? See, that's what we're looking at when we look at Corinth. And it only takes called men and women who can do that, because on your own, you wouldn't do that. On their own, we like the safety of our homeschooling and Christian schools and, and families and, and a large church body to fellowship with. And when we look at church plants like this, we realize that God is driving these men to go and plant this church. Because on your own, you wouldn't do this. And we see this type of mentality in the Apostle Paul. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 with me. This is the Apostle Paul. This is what drives him. He tells Timothy here, this is his closest closing inspired letter. He dies shortly after this, put to death by Nero. Um, and he says, remember Jesus Christ. This is the key to all that we do. We remember Jesus Christ, don't we? As Christians, we're enthralled with him. We remember him daily. We pray to him. We speak of him. We worship at his name. This is what we do. We remember Jesus Christ. Notice this, risen from the dead. We just got done celebrating Easter a few weeks ago. If he doesn't get out of that grave, we are wasting our time, brothers and sisters, aren't we? He, is a, he beat sin, Satan, and death, didn't he? And then he says, descendant of David. You go, why does he throw that in? 
Because that links the entire Old Testament, New Testament together as a promise of God, that God promised there would be one coming from the throne of David that would rule and reign. And so Paul does not leave that out. He wants the Jewish descendants to understand this is the Messiah. That, that phrase is there, for we know, so we'll know that he is the Messiah. And he says, according to my gospel, my good news that, that Jesus himself commissioned me to give. Now notice what he does. Verse 9. This motivates him, verse 8, to say verse 9. For which I suffer hardship. As we go in to look at Corinth, and we're going to look at his second missionary journey as we make our way to Corinth, we'll spend most of our time in Acts 18 this morning, he suffers tremendous hardship. And notice he says in verse 9, even imprisonment, imprisonment as a criminal, unjustly. He gets to Philippi, we'll see this in a moment, and he is unjustly beat and put into prison for proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, but the word of God is not imprisoned, or your Bible may say not chained. Nothing can stop the word of God. See, this is Paul's mentality. This is why he goes to places like Corinth and Derby and Lystra and Iconium and, and, and so forth. He works his way through these places that are all anti-gospel because he knows the word of God cannot be chained. See, I love that verse. It gives me great comfort to preach the word of God, to teach the word of God, knowing that it's not up to me to say everything perfect, to be the best oratorial example ever. You know that's not true. <laughs> God's word's not chained. See, this is the philosophy he has as he moves towards Corinth. Look at verse 10. This is an amazing verse. For this reason, I endure all things. So we'll stop right there. I got that all circled in my Bible. He endured all things? I mean, he lost so much. He lost friendship. It's possibly lost wife. Possibly children. It's unbelievable what Paul gave up for the sake of the gospel to take it. And he says, look, uh, for this reason, because of Christ risen from the dead, he's the Messiah, I was given this gospel and I suffered these hardships. For this reason, I endure all things. And notice who he endures it for, for the sake of those who are chosen, or your Bible might say, for the sake of the elect. He is firmly convinced that if he goes and preaches the Bible according to as God has instructed him, that people will get saved. I love that. I remember just being a young, young missionary, just starting out in eastern, northeast, northwestern Nevada and northwestern California and planting churches out in that area. And it was so devoid of Bible teaching. There was no biblical churches out there. And I remember coming across this and saying, God, if I preach the word, you promise to save. <laughs> That's a good deal. And, and he did. And he did. And so Paul holds on to this so dearly. He knows that he would endure all things for the sake of the elect. Listen, I think that's an encouragement to you and me. How many of us have uh, children or family members who don't know Jesus? Will you endure? Will you endure? Will you keep standing on truth with kindness and graciousness, but, but firmly stand? Because God loves to save. And the Apostle Paul has this in mind. You can't study the book of Corinth and realize how difficult that ministry was. It is one of the most difficult ministries he ever comes across in his 30 years of ministry is Corinth. He has to have this as a mindset to go. Otherwise, he would not go. Notice that. Notice the rest of this. So that. We call this a henna clause in the Greek. It means this is, this is the reason why. So that they may also obtain salvation. That they may be saved. I'm going to endure. I'm going to go for the sake of the elect. Because I believe God's going to save them. 
which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. And then he says, this is a trustworthy statement. Look at this. If we, do, if we die with him, we will also live with him. See, following Jesus is a, a life of self-denial, isn't it? That's what Christians do. Now, we may not know all that when we first become saved. We realize we're sinners and Jesus died for us. And there's a simple understanding of the gospel. But as we go on, we learn to realize that we die daily to self. We die to self. And that's the mark of a Christian. And Paul, Paul certainly exhibits that greater than anyone, doesn't he, as a human? Right? Then he says, if we endure, verse 12, we'll also reign with him. And remember, we talked about the doctrine of perseverance when we were finishing our series on, on salvation. And the doctrine of perseverance is just simply says those who are saved will finish. The saved persevere because God saved us. And, and that's what this is saying. We'll endure and we will reign with him, right? But then if we deny him, he'll deny us. So there's those who walk aisles and pray prayers and later in life deny him. Maybe deny him with their actions, with even their own tongues. It shows they were never of us. They went out from us. But look at this, verse 13, because you go, well, Scott, man, there's times I struggle. Yeah, me too. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And you know why? Because he can't deny himself. Because once he saves you, he indwells you. And he can't deny himself. And so there's a big difference between the end of verse 12, those who are not really saved, who deny him, and those who maybe go through times of faithlessness, and we lean upon the faithfulness of God, but we don't stay there. <laughs> In fact, his faithfulness brings us to repentance. I wanted to read that text because we're going to go in to look at Corinth and what Paul's going to do. And over this week and, and next Sunday, I'm going to describe to you the ministry of Corinth. And it's shocking. And I will try my best to keep it somewhat G-rated, PG maybe, because it is a gross city when it comes to sexual immorality. It's the leading, the charge, in the degradation of humanity at this time. And God says, Paul, go plant a church there. I have many there. What an amazing thing. Well, if you have notes, let me look at the first point here. We'll see if we can get through this. The birth of the church of Corinth, the birth of the church of Corinth. Go to Acts chapter 18. I had Pastor Jason read this passage. In fact, go to Acts 16, and we'll make our way just real quickly to this text. Acts chapter 16, uh, actually 15, verse 36, is we see the launch of Paul's second missionary journey. He decides at this point that it's good to go back and revisit some of these churches, go to new areas that God is drawing him towards to plant churches. And he's given reports. He's come back and he's reported to the elders in Jerusalem and Antioch, Bethsaida, and, and reminded them what God is doing, that he's going now to the Gentiles. They're seeing Gentiles receive the Spirit of God and be baptized. And, and they're all just amazed at what God has been doing. And so here they are. They're commissioned again for a second missionary journey. It starts in chapter 15, verse 36. But as fruitful as Paul's missionary journeys were, there were tremendous hardships in them. This one starts in difficulty. And isn't it interesting the human problems we have at times? Here, the Apostle Paul, the great writer of 13 epistles, planner of countless churches, him and his sidekick Barnabas get in a big argument over taking a young man named John Paul. Excuse me, John Mark. John Mark had abandoned them on their first missionary journey 
And Paul, being the driver he was, he said, yeah, he's not going. But the son of encouragement, this is what Barnabas means, says, I'll take him. And you'll notice in that text towards the end that a great debate, a real serious debate came out between, between Paul and Barnabas on whether to take him. So this whole trip starts in some human difficulty, right? John Mark had not been faithful. And yet Barnabas saw something in him and was willing to take a shot at taking him with him. And don't be mad at Paul. Paul's, man, Paul's got the weight of the Spirit driving him to places. You'll see later where he's driven to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to die. He's a very driven man, and God is using him. But he also put men in his life like a Barnabas. And I love the Barnabases in my life. I kind of lean towards the Paul a little bit, if you know me. I always have my foot on the pedal just a bit. But God surrounds good elders and people in ministry with all types of different gifts. And so this ministry launches in two different directions. Paul taking with him Silas and Barnabas taking Mark with him. Eventually, they work their way up to Derby and Lystra. And I think I have a map. I think they're going to put up behind me. Because I kind of want you to see if, hopefully this will come through. Um, the, the second missionary journey starts at Antioch here. And they make their way up through Tarsus. That's where Paul was originally from. Doubtlessly church plants. We don't know of uh, a letter written there, but doubtlessly church plants there. And he makes his way to Lystra and Derby. And it's here that we see in the start of chapter 16 that there he finds a young man named Timothy. This is where Timothy comes along in the ministry. And we know by 2 Timothy that he has a godly grandmother and a godly mother who have poured truth in him. In fact, he was taught the scriptures from early ages. And here Paul picks him up and begins to take him along and take him under his wing. Now this this trip along here was full of hardships. It was not easy. There was times he was beaten and trailed by people who wanted to throw him in jail. But these were difficult times. But even in the midst of that, look at chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's exactly what's happening. And hell's raging when you follow the book of Acts. Satan is doing everything he can to stop the planning of these churches, the movement of the way, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ going to not only Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. He's doing everything to stop that command from God. And yet, the Bible says here in verse 5, there was great fruit. There was many coming. Paul goes on to make his way from, from there. Oop, we lost the map. Um, it may come back. Leave that up. Um, makes his way from Lystra, and, he, and he's eventually going to work his way to Troas. But as he gets into here, he runs into My, uh, Mizra, and, and there Mizra, he wanted to go to Bithynia, and Bithynia is this, this upper area in Asian Minor. He wanted to go there, but the Bible says there in verse uh, 7 that the Spirit of Jesus would not permit him to go. He had goals and aspirations to reach that area. It had been unreached. The gospel had not been there. And he wanted to go there. And isn't that interesting? And so from there, he obeys the spirit of Jesus as, as he has this vision um, to, to not go there. And, and it's interesting. There's, there's times where, where Paul goes through some very difficult times. And I think there's six times in the book of Acts where God gives 
um, this is of course before the scriptures are written, uh, a beautiful vision of where Paul needs to go in difficult times. But we know what he does is he, he goes from Troas, he, he makes his way across there, comes to Neropolis, and then he makes his way, he walks from there to Philippi, and this is what happens. When we get into chapter 16, he's, he's in verse 9, he sees another vision of, of someone that is calling to him from help from Macedonia, come and help. And so he makes his way there to Philippi, and guess who he runs into? Lydia. God had a, a divine, divine um, uh, meeting waiting for him in Lydia, who was from Thyatira, which is, which is, down, is down in here. She's from that area, but she seems to be her and all of her family living in Philippi, and she's the birth of the, uh, the Philippi church. Well, that goes really well. This woman who is a great worshiper of God, look at verse 14, was listening. Now look at this. She's a worshiper of God in verse 16, was listening. Now look at it. It says, and the Lord opened her heart and responded to the things of Paul. So here she is a devout, devout, probably Jew at this point. Um, I imagine I have to look into that just a little bit, but she's a devout worshiper of God. And yet she does not know him personally. And God opens a mind and there's the birth of the church. Well, that seems really good. Things are going swimmingly there. we got a church going. But right on the heels, Satan's at work, isn't he? And here comes a fortune teller with a demonic little girl who's crying out what seems to be blessings and honoring the Apostle Paul for all he's doing. But he knows it's the work of the devil. God never uses the work of the devil to, to highlight what he is doing. And Paul turns around and rebukes that spirit. That spirit comes out and the whole thing blows up on him. In fact, it almost breaks out into a riot, and Paul and Silas are drug away, and they're thrown into the prison. There, the Bible says in verse 23 that they were struck with many blows. You want to be a church planner? <laughs> you want to go share the gospel in places where it has not been heard? This is the type of thing that happens. This is why we pray so fervently for our missionaries. And here they are, now thrown into prison. Their feet are shackled in verse 24. But in the middle of the night, look what they're doing in 25. They're praising God, singing hymns of praise to Him. They're counted themselves worthy to suffer for the sake of God and for the elect. We know the story, right? A great earthquake comes, knocks the shackles off, and... Everybody seems to be gone. The, the Philippian jailer's about ready to run himself through the sword. And Paul says, oh, whoa, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it. We're all here. We're not going anywhere. The man falls at his feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Listen, don't tell me people aren't listening to you at work. <laughs> he was at work listening to other men praise God. And there we know that this church now expands because God not only saves the Philippian jailer, he saves the whole family. They all come to know the Lord. They take them home, clean their wounds up there. They're, they rejoice and believe in, in God. The whole house believes in verse 34. And they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. From there, Paul travels to Thessalonica. He makes his way down through here, most likely on foot. And there he comes to Thessalonica, and this is a good church. He writes two letters to them. We know them. He, um, he's encouraged by them. But look what follows him, verse 5 of chapter 17. After he comes in and he's preaching to, these, uh, to, the, to this now birthing of this church in Thessalonica, um, 
now comes these jealousy rulers, Jews who are coming. And they form mobs and they attack them. And Paul, if you follow this down, Paul has to flee. He's on the run again. God blesses him. That's a tough one. Guess what he blesses him with next? The Bereans. And he moves from there to Berea, as you see. And there, the new group of people who, who hearts are open to the word of God. In fact, they listen to what Paul teaches. They go and examine the word themselves. And guess what word they were examining? New Testament? No, no, the New Testament was written. They examined the Old Testament because that's what Paul was teaching because the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus as the Messiah and the only one you could come to the Father through. And they examined that. And so Paul was greatly blessed as he went to Berea. From there, Paul set sail and he lands in Athens. In Athens, he is alone. It's an interesting study. He, the Bible doesn't say he's, any, he's left Paul and Silas behind in Berea or Thessalonica in that area. They're at work there. He goes ahead and he goes to Athens by himself. Athens is a difficult place you could imagine, right? Center of Greek culture. And here he begins to speak and his Spirit was being provoked, and, and as he sees this city, look at in verse 20, 16, the city's full of idols. This is a pagan, godless place. And there Paul begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection in verse 18. Isn't that encouraging? In the middle of the most, one of the most uh, central places of pagan worship, Paul has confidence to preach Jesus and the resurrection. They thought this was some kind of new teaching in verse 19, verse 20. They said this is strange to our ears. They had not heard the gospel. But this is exactly what Jesus said, right? Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now we're getting out into the known world as far as it's going in, this, in these continents at this time. And Paul's going out there, and this is a strange teaching to them. Oh, but then you get to the story of Mars Hill, right? He ends up on top of uh, Aeropagus there, this hilltop, and there is the temple, and he walks in, and all of these gods are, are, and idols are there, and he comes upon an unknown god. It says an unknown god, and so in his wisdom, led by the Spirit of God, he says, ah, oh, let me tell you about the unknown god, because he knew they didn't know him. And he begins to lay out the gospel. He begins to lay out the sovereignty of God, how God planned all things, set boundaries for everybody, has, has known all things, and, and yet now he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, and he gives this tremendous message there. And when you get towards the end of chapter 17, there were some who were believing him, and some even joined him. And so most likely there became a church in Athens that we don't have a letter written to, but there were people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from there... <laughs> He comes down from Athens, and this, this map is not certainly the scale, but this is what they call a land bridge right there. And there he crosses into Corinth. Everett Harrison speaks of Paul's condition after this missionary journey. As Paul arrives in Corinth, doubtlessly greatly discouraged from the limited success in Athens, we just see a few people follow the Lord Jesus Christ, combined with loneliness, he's alone, and he's recovering from beatings, the prospect, now think about this, the prospect of facing this city, Corinth, with all its vices, its weaknesses, doubtlessly gripped the apostle as he arrived to begin his work. You know, have you ever gone to work and you're just worn out? 
and you have super difficult things you have to face? Can you imagine rolling into Corinth after this trip? You're still bleeding through your robes from the whips of Philippi. You're still healing from bones that have been pulled out of socket and, and, and marks of chains around your ankles. You're still healing. And then God says, I want you to go to San Francisco <laughs> and go down to Polk Street and plant a church. And by the way, you're alone. Boy, you better have the Spirit of God and you better know He's directing you. Because this was a difficult challenge. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, listen to this, and it helps us understand where he was. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. What a verse. This is the great apostle Paul. He says, I was with you in fear. I was with you in weakness. I was with you with trembling. He writes to Thessalonica why he's at Corinth for the year and a half he was there. He wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3, 7. He says this, For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and our afflictions, we are comforted about you through your faith. See, we get insights that Corinth was not an easy ministry. It was a very difficult ministry. And I thought, and even jotted down on my notes, I said, well, which church do we want to be? Do we want it to be the difficult church? Church is always flirting with the world, always letting the world in. Instead of going out to the world, we let them open the doors in. This is what Corinth did. Or you want to be Thessalonica or the Berean church that searches the word of God, that believes the word of God, that says no to sin and yes to the Lord and walks with him. That, that's the difference in these churches. And yet, and yet, so many churches in America base their doctrine and what they do off of the book of 1 Corinthians. And no, matter, no wonder there's such difficulty of understanding some of these hard things that are in there. Well, let's be a Christ-exalting, a word-devoted church because that's what, that's what becomes a beacon of light in a dark world. Things getting better out there in America? Eh, probably not. Paul goes on to say in 2, Peter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 that things will grow worse and worse in latter days. And we're seeing those, aren't we? But despite the difficulties of Corinth, here's Paul. He knows God is leading him. In, in 2 Corinthians, he calls him the God of all comfort because I think Paul understood that comfort of God as he went into this difficult ministry. And so we too press on in hardships. Now look at verse, chapter 18 and we'll... See if we can make our way down through this because we want to understand what's going on here. We want to see the grace of God to help him do what he's about ready to do. Now, look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 18 of Acts. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a few, uh, excuse me, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Now Paul had to leave Silas and Timothy back in Macedonia in the Philippi area, and they were ministering there, and they made their way down to Thessalonica and so forth. But he proceeds from Athens alone. And, and, and look what God does in these verses. This is how our God works. God graciously, during this most difficult time, gives him strong companions. I love that. I read that this week and I thought, that's, that's just God, right? You know when you're going through hardship, a friend loves 
deeper than a brother, right? I mean, I mean, this is what he needed. He needed someone to come along and get an arm underneath him and say, I'll walk with you through this. And here God graciously sends this, this loving couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They're a husband and wife team, and they, they become close friends with Paul. And the Bible other, in other places tells us they even risk their life for Paul. Isn't that the graciousness of God? Isn't that wonderful to serve with people who would lay down their life not only for Christ, but to lay down their life for you? That's, that's true brotherhood. That's kinsmanship in Christ, that you would lay down your life for someone else. Notice they were forced to leave Rome. Um, Aquila and Priscilla had to move their business to Corinth. Uh, um, there, Claudius was getting rid of Jews. And not only here, it just tells us he was moving Jews out, but he was also moving out the lower class out of Rome. Rome would build up with lots of people, and then they would just move them out, and they'd send them places like Corinth. And, of course, Priscilla and Aquila, being Jews, got caught up in this movement of people out of Rome. But in God's sovereignty, he matches this couple up with Apostle Paul, not only just spiritual, but notice also in economic way, doesn't he? They're tent makers just like Paul. And so instead of being rivals, they said, how can we together make a living? And so here they match their wits together and they begin their tent-making uh, business as well as the ministry. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul, this is he, and he, that's Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, doubtlessly, Aquila and Priscilla helped Paul with the business and supported him, but his goal was always to go to the synagogues. Remember, he always went to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and then to the rest of the world, right? This was his uh, motif. This is the way he worked. And so he comes, and here he is in the synagogue instructing, uh, doing evangelism. And doubtlessly they're with him, but look at verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul began to devote himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews, and look at this, that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah. So there's a point here that's really important that's, that's about ready to happen. Paul has a tent-making ministry because he has to feed himself. He has to get through life, right? He has to pay bills. He has to do all those things. Guess who shows up? Well, Timothy and Silas show up, and guess what they're coming with? All that church up in Macedonia up there, they sent money. And Paul is now freed from his business to preach the word 24-7, and that's exactly what he does. He's now full-time effort of proclaiming the gospel. And I love the end of verse 5. Notice He's solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the what? The Christ. That's what? The Messiah. Well, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble really quick. Because they, who, what did they do to Jesus? They killed him. So this is not going to go over very good. They're either going to repent of their sins and believe that Jesus was the Messiah, or we've got to get rid of this guy. And both are there, aren't they? So it seems Paul... Um, has Silas and Timothy come and they pick up some of the heavy load and become part of this church plant. And this financial gift from the Macedonian church is an amazing help. We'll see as we get into the book of uh, Corinthians and 2 Corinthians eventually that he's so grateful for this gift. And what's interesting, the Corinth is the rich church. 
And he has to plead with them. He has to actually admonish them to give because they won't give. And the churches up in Philippi, that's where all the mines are. That's where Rome's uh, steel and, and all of their precious metals came from. That They all had a lot of laborers up there. It was, it was a blue-collared at best area. They outgive the rich. They outgive. And because of that, Paul is free to preach the gospel. Look at verse 6. But when they resist it, this is the Jews... And blasphemed. Who do you think they're blaspheming? Paul or Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. He shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, for now I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, what often happens is people closest to us reject the gospel, don't they? See, this is Paul's habit to go to the synagogue, to go to his own people. Romans chapter 10 and 11 says he would give his own eternity for their salvation. He had, a, he had a burden for his own people to believe in Jesus Christ. But notice they resist it. They even blaspheme Christ. They blaspheme the gospel and thus displaying a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And if you reject Jesus, you're going to hell. Period. <laughs> he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. And this is what's happening. Of course, this is how his ministry starts in Corinth. But notice here, Paul quickly understands that he's throwing pearls to swine. He realizes this, right? Notice in there in verse 6. And, and he does this Jewish gesture of rejection. He shakes off his garment towards them. And Paul, look, he wanted, him, he wanted them to know that he didn't want any part of their synagogue. If you're going to reject Jesus Christ, I don't even want your dust. He shakes that off because he knows if he does not and he opens any other door that you can only come to God through Jesus Christ alone, he himself would fall into heresy. And so he does an open gesture to say, look, I don't want anything to do with this. In fact, look, he makes this great statement there in verse 6. Your blood be on your own head. I am clean. Wow, what a statement. See, that indicates his opponents were fully responsible for what they're doing. Now, now there's, it's difficult to say, remember, it wouldn't take long, and all they want to do is kill Paul when he does this. But, but what Paul's doing is, look, I have carried the message. I can't save these people. I can't make them repent. We need to know that. Well, that's not our job. That's what God does. But our job is to carry a clear message of Jesus Christ, not a muddled up one or mixed up with a bunch of other religious thoughts or, or tie in some good deeds and go to church and all that stuff. Our job is to carry a very clear, direct message that only through Jesus Christ will you ever go to heaven. Amen. That's our job. And when you do that, as difficult as it may be with your own family members or people close to you, you can say with Paul, I'm clean of this. I gave you the answer for eternity and you rejected it. And you leave up to saving, up to God. Remember, Paul knew that he was like them at one time. He was a violent aggressor, the Bible says. He was a violent aggressor against Christ's church. But, but now his conscience is clear. He'd experienced the cleansing work of the forgiveness of his sins. He knew he was free from that. He was clean. It wasn't his job to save people. His job was to carry this message. And Paul's ministry now was turning to the Gentiles just as Christ told him he would do after the road of, on Damascus. Look at verse 7 with me. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named 
tigigus, it's, it's an interesting spelling there, uh, um justice. He was a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. Well, here, God, right off the bat, he walks out of this synagogue, shakes off the dust off of it, and, and just like God, he, he immediately shows Paul that he has a church plant that's going uh, to happen here, and the first one he's going to give him is a Gentile who's living right next door. Isn't this the way God works? How many times have we had some, I don't know if this happened to you, but times I've shared the gospel with somebody thinking that God was going to save them, and there was someone over here listening, and they came to me later. You go, wow, I didn't see that one coming. See, this is what God does. And he's looking and says, Paul, this is a difficult ministry. I've sent you into a difficult place, but I have people here. There's one right next door. Go out and tell your neighbor. And this man believes. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so not only does he pick up this Gentile neighbor next door, which really greatly disturbed the Jews, right? But Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, a Jew in his entire family, received salvation and began to follow Paul. And don't you love that phrase? I, I hope God is saying this about Ormond Beach. I have many in Ormond Beach who are going to hear and believe and be baptized, publicly identify themselves with Jesus Christ. See, God and his gospel and the message of Christ alone is, is greater than any culture. One of the things we want to learn as we study through Corinth, we want to get encouraged that there's nothing going on out there that God can't penetrate. No matter where government goes, no matter what, where local and national politics go, no matter what's happening, God can pierce through the culture. The gospel cuts like a knife. It cuts like a knife. And this is such an encouraging thing as we begin to understand where Paul is at. He stirs the hearts. He can draw one or he can draw multitudes to himself, and he does it at any time. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. And then this interesting. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Isn't that interesting? Paul was afraid. I mean, sometimes I think about Paul as just not afraid guy, right? I mean, he's a man's man. He's tough. He's been beat. I mean, we look at his list in 2 Corinthians of all the things shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, stoned. I mean, all kinds of things. The dude is tough, isn't he? But the Bible says here that the Lord tells him, do not be afraid any longer. I've been afraid in ministry. <laughs> I've had to do some difficult things in ministry. They're not easy. You don't sleep at night a lot of times. You're, you don't know how the flock is going to respond to something when you bring something biblically before them. Um, you may have to go um, speak with somebody about a very difficult issue. And, and there's times you're afraid. And, and that's okay. That, God knows. I say this all the time. I said, Lord, you know I'm but dust. I need help. <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Because when I die, I turn back to dust. I'm not, I'm not supernatural, right? I'm not some being like an angel or something. I'm a human, right? I cut when I bleed. I, I bleed when I cut. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. And so there's times they're afraid. Notice Paul seems to be afraid. Do not be afraid any longer. So he's been through all of this. He's been through Athens. He's come across that land's bridge. He's, he's dealt with the synagogue. He's got people coming to know the Lord, and yet he's still afraid. But he says, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word among them. Well, doubtlessly, Paul is grateful for his new friends and his old friends and what's happening here. But recorded in Acts are, are six different visions that he has. And each time, Paul is at a breaking point. He's at a point where fear, and he's, he's maybe thinking, and maybe even here he's thinking, okay, I've done enough. I got these guys. There's, there's some happened here. I'm going to go on. I want to I get back up to Bithynia in different places. And, and, the, and the Lord comes along in this great vision. Remember, they don't have the full scriptures yet, so supernatural things are happening. And, and he says, look, don't go. In fact, not only are you not going to go, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Great opposition at times. But when we're walking with God and we're in the center of His will, we don't have to be afraid to follow Him. But then the Lord tells Paul that He'll be with him. And I, I love that phrase. You know, in our Wednesday night study, we're in Exodus. We're just about ready to finish Exodus up. And there, that great time when Moses goes up, the nation has worshipped this, this golden bull calf. He goes up and he has to get time with God. He says, look, you've got to show me your glory. And then he says, remember, I'm not going if you ain't coming. Because <laughs> he knew, he knew he had a, a difficult group of people that he had to lead, that God was asking him. He goes, look, I'm not going if you're not coming. And God reveals himself to him. And I think this is similar here. God reveals himself to Paul, much like he did to Moses, much like he did to Joshua. And Joshua crosses the Jordan and meets with this angel of the Lord, the, 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 the captain of the guard of the host, probably the pre-incarnate Christ. Very similar to that. And look, if that wasn't enough, notice, notice the Lord gives him more promises. He says, look, I'm going to be with you. But no one's, first, no one's going to attack you. In fact, what the Lord is saying, you're going to be under my divine protection. I'll protect you. Now, isn't that still true? Think about our Father in heaven. We are his what? What would he do for his children? We fall under this protection of God, and yet we try to protect ourselves so often. We try to step beyond God's sovereignty as though we can help him in some way. Paul has learned this. He is going into Corinth, and he is afraid. And God says, look, you don't have to be afraid. I myself am going to protect you from this. Secondly, he says, look, I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. I remember one church plan I was doing in southeastern um, Oregon. It was a difficult place. There was no, no history of ever a church, a Bible teaching church ever been there. Um, there was a bunch of false religion people that lived there and owned ranches, and it was just a difficult area. And I remember one day driving up there, I'd started a Bible study, didn't know if anyone was going to come. There was a one-room schoolhouse that I had rented, and then every other Monday I'd come in there and teach a Bible study. And I remember working through some of these passages and said, God, I'm going, but I'm afraid. <laughs> I know there's people out there that don't want to hear the message of Christ, and I'm afraid I'm going to go up there and no one's going to show up. And it was just a step of faith. Get in the truck, you know, drive an hour on these dirt roads, make your way into this little ranching community where there's never been a witness of the, of the scriptures there, and hope, because you mailed every, all 42 box holders in about 50-mile square area that I was going to do a Bible study. I mean, just drive it up there and go, God, I, no one's going to show up. 
And I remember just working through this and thinking about what God did for Paul. I said, will you have many people? That first Monday, we did that Bible study, a dozen people showed up. Now you have to understand, a dozen out of 50 is a lot of people when you do the averages. And that Bible study grew and grew. And people left false religions and came, and that became their church on Monday nights as we held together. But it's just a reminder, God has many people. He's in the business of saving people, even in places like Corinth. When Paul had come back on his first missionary journey, in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, he says, And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. See, though we believe in the doctrines of grace, right? We believe in a sovereign God. Though we hold all of those things, we are still desperate to put our faith in the Lord, aren't we? Because we come afraid. Lord, are you going to save my son? Are you going to save my parents? Are you going to save these people I love? The Bible says, all those he appointed to eternal life believed. And he held on to that. Now, because of this, Paul's strength was renewed. And, and you notice in verse 11, he stays. I think he was trying to leave. I would have wanted to leave. I remember I had a difficult church that we were in, and I kept driving out of the city on a hill and kind of sitting up there and saying, God, let me go. <laughs> I want to go. I don't want to stay here. He goes, no, you get back down there. I have many people there. Go back down there and preach the word. And so he stays, and he stays for six, a year and six months, teaching the word of God. Paul was faithful to his calling. I want to just end here, and next week we'll get into the city of Corinth, its people. You don't, it is such an amazing city. It is such a messed up city in so many ways. And yet God is going to do miraculous things there. But I wanted to encourage you. Be faithful. Be faithful in the small things. Get up in the morning and read your Bible and talk to God. Start there. Talk to Him. Believe that He's in the business of saving people. Find your boldness and faith in Him, not in who you are and the people that you're trying to reach, but put your faith in Him. Start each morning with that. See what God will do. God's going to save, right? He's known. He knows who's are his from the foundations of the world. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. The question is, are we going to get to be involved with that? Or because of fear, will we not speak or go or act? Oh, Corinth. I know we just started in on this. This is the first missionary journey. This is, this is it. Next week, we're going to look in depth at the city, and we're going to look at the church that gets planted there. And then we'll start working our way verse by verse through this book. And we're going to learn a lot about our God and about ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you that you give us the word of God so we may know you and believe in you. Lord, we thank you that you love us even when we're afraid. Even when hard things come our way, you strengthen us to do it. Thank you for the example of Apostle Paul, who seemingly wanted to leave. He was afraid, and you told him not to be afraid. Lord, you also showed him such grace and mercy, and you sent him dear loved ones, ones who would walk with him and suffer with him and work with him, help him raise monies, help him fulfill his calling, Lord. You, you do that. You always surround us with others, Lord. And even when we have to go things alone, you are with us. 
And so, Father, as we study this great book of 1 Corinthians, may we learn much about you, and may we learn much about ourselves, where we're afraid, where we've let the world get into our lives, Lord, where it's distracted us from your glory, and we've got hung up on things that are not essential. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless this teaching through the first book of 1 Corinthians, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and let me read you a closing benediction. Our gracious, kind, and heavenly Father, thank you for the light and mercy you have shed on us. Please cause us to know your word and to live according to it. Cause us to experience the joy of obedience and true worship from a pure heart. May your son's finished work be our constant motivation for us to die to self and to live for you. And may the things we do and say in this life reflect the great forgiveness we have received from your son. Amen.